Hello there, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge, your hyper-local progressive podcast. Today, we're keeping February going with our continuing Congressional Contenders series. South Brooklyn and Staten Island is becoming more and more flippable each day. In fact, we're now merely leaning Republican from likely Republican, according to the Cook Political Report. But more important than party is choosing the right person to represent us in D.C., That's why we're bringing you these long-format interviews with all the Democratic primary contenders. Rachel and I take a step back and let the candidates discuss the issues that matter to them in detail, not just sound bites, so you can really get a feel for each candidate. Today, Rachel and I are sitting down with Zach Emig. Zach, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So yeah, where do we want to start? Well, I think the best place always to start is why I'm running. When you boil it down, I'm running to get money into people's pockets. Because I think if you look at what's causing so much stress in America, mm-hmm. it's that people feel financial stress. And the numbers bear this out. You know, basically 75% of the country hasn't had a significant pay raise in close to two decades. And that's people who've gone from age 30 to 50 without getting the money to mm. pay for their, their kids' college or to pay off their mortgage and things like that. As a progressive, I'm excited about this opportunity because there's lots of policy ideas out there in progressive circles that will address this problem. And I think as someone with a business background, I'm a great messenger for that that message. If you have the ability to do something, you should do it. It's sort of a responsibility, I think. Um, I was very active in the presidential race as a volunteer in 2016, doing lots of door knocking, voter registration, phone banking. Mm. Um, Actually, the three days up to the election, I was down in Philadelphia. I'm knocking on doors for the Clinton campaign. I have really happy memories from it. I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed talking to people. It was a sunny blue sky, great weather. And then obviously the election came and turned out massively different from what we wanted. But then rather than get depressed about it or outraged or angered, I said, I enjoy doing this. And if I want change to come to D.C., uh, why not pick up the baton and do it myself? So in terms of my business background, uh, I went to MIT for computer science as an Mm. undergrad and did software engineering and programming for four or five years and then went and got an MBA at the University of Michigan. And since 2005, I've been a bond trader in New York and also in Asia. And one thing about a bond trading floor, it's a very (laughs) rough work environment. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You have to be able to focus on getting results, even when tempers are flared or people are cursing or things like that. So because of maybe that experience, my reaction to the election 2016 wasn't so much tears or outrage. I was sort of a sense of, okay, it's time to lace up the boots and get to work. Mm. And one of the first things I did in my campaign was put together my campaign platform, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. which I I call the Narrows Agenda, because it sounds cool. And (laughs) the district is surround, you know, surrounds the Narrows water. But, you know, it's 30 pages that sort of flesh out that give meat to Mm -hmm. my platform. You know, when you boil down my platform, it's money in your pocket, health insurance in your wallet, money out of politics opioid CEOs in handcuffs, and community over corporations. Mm. And those are all lovely sounding. I think probably most people would agree with it. But how do you you get there? As a businessman, you have to justify how are you going to do these things. And I put together the platform, one, so people could actually go to the website, zachemic2018.com, and read it and 
and see what I'm running on. But then, too, mm. the act of writing it helped really flesh out my mind and thinking through what exactly we're doing here. And I would encourage, you know, all the campaigns to do that really as a way to help both the voters and the candidates. When you started out your campaign, where did you go to kind of get all of the information? Mm, like yeah. in the Narrows Plan, you have lists of here's existing legislation that's similar to the legislation that I'm recommending. Like, how did you get started in that process? Well, I think generally I was following politics already pretty actively. You know, I read lots of publications, both on the left and the right. So I was aware of these types of legislation. But yeah, that's the great thing. You don't have to invent policy solutions. They're probably out there. People say, oh, the Democrats haven't been doing things for workers. Well, there's actually lots of legislation they put. Patty Murray, Senator Patty Murray's Wage Act to strengthen the yeah. National Labor Relations Board and union rights. She proposed that in Congress. Now, since Democrats are not in control in 2015, it hasn't been passed. But that legislation is sitting there. Bernie Sanders strengthened Social Security Act which I completely support, which would increase the payout in Social Security by lifting the cap on payroll tax. Mm. That's a way to get money into retirees' pockets. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's already written legislation out there. So if you want to read about those pieces, I put footnotes in all of my yeah. campaign platform. I think there's like 30-something footnotes, so you can click on it and go and read the actual legislation. It's not magic. It's just laws. That's all. You know, a lot of politicians <laughs> say, oh, I'm going out there to fight for you. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight. Like, I'm not going to fight. I'm going to write laws that'll get money in your pocket. If you want someone to fight, go to a world wrestling match. <laughs> yeah. A legislator going to Congress to legislate? What? <laughs> that's that's, that's crazy. Innovative that's just crazy enough so. to work. <laughs> we can help. You know, obviously in business, I've interviewed for jobs and I've also interviewed applicants for jobs. And you know, if I had a, especially a first-time job applicant come in and say, hey, Zach, you should hire me because I'll do great things for your profit and loss statement. I'll say, okay, how are you going to do great things? If they say, well, I'm going to work harder than other people, how? How are you going to do that? How? Too often in politics, we let candidates get by with just a simple answer that anyone can agree with, but have they thought through how it actually works? You know, because in the end, America's, you know, 350 million people nation. Mm. It's a huge country. You know, oftentimes the gut instinct answer is not necessarily the best answer or there are side effects that you haven't thought of. I think that as a community, we're also we're really aware of the fact that New York 11 reflects a lot of the same issues that the rest of the country is facing. So that local and national balance is really interesting. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's a fascinating district. It has a lot of immigrants, especially in the, the Brooklyn side, but also in the North Shore of Staten Island where I live. Uh, you know, For example, there's a large Sri Lankan community, um, but it also has a higher union density than maybe other parts of the country. So you have a lot of middle class workers who really have been affected by the, the way working class and middle class people are paid in America. And then you have some suburban, you have transportation issues. So it's, it's a really fascinating district within New York City. And then finally, it's the only district in New York City represented by a Republican. Mm -hmm. I'm someone I work with Republicans. I have Republicans in some of my family members, or at least yeah. Republican voting. So just the word Republican doesn't make me you know, have vapors. But <laughs> the problem you're seeing is like, what are they doing with the power? Because they yeah. right now have all the power in the country. And the decisions they're making are not helping the people yeah. in our district. Yeah. 
Well, so we talked a little bit downstairs about this idea of getting more money into people's wallets. So how? <laughs> what, what are the plans? Big picture, the way people get money in America is, for the most part, through their jobs, and then for retirees through Social Security, right? So let's break down, let's first talking about paychecks. Um, you know, I'm not a socialist. I believe people <laughs> should have good paying jobs. And the problem in America is the laws that we have create incentives for the pay to go to the top of the scale rather than the bottom. What are the remedies? One, Bernie Sanders in 2015 introduced the $15 minimum wage bill. That's a no-brainer to me. The minimum wage should be raised to the bottom. You know, a lot of listeners might say, oh, I'm already making above $15. But that's how you get pay sort of inflation going up. The person yeah. who's making $16 an hour, all of a sudden everyone has sort of caught up with them. And they can go to their boss and ask for 17 or 18. So that's, that's step one. Secondly, overtime pay. The overtime pay limit in America, it's capped. The rate of salary at which you can earn overtime pay for overtime hours. President Obama raised that cap, and that's been let to expire by the, the Republicans. Raise that so you can earn overtime pay when you work extra hours. Third, you know, there's a big divergence in what CEOs are paid in America and what workers are paid. What, what is the average? It's like... like ridiculous 100 times 200 times and as someone who works on a bond trading floor i've met some ceos before and they're often decent hard-working people but i don't think they're working 500 times harder yeah. than the person <laughs> that's just starting out here's a dirty little secret if you go into most hedge funds and said okay all the people working here you're no longer allowed to have internet explorer in your computer <laughs> you'd see how hard people have been working all along right right um, <laughs> but so what's the remedy for that take this tax bill the republicans just passed where they said okay corporations your tax rates can go from 35% down to 21% that's a 14 point cut and we're going to give that to you for free you know mm. on the trading floor there's a there's words that we use for people who give it away for free um, i won't repeat here <laughs> because this is a family show but my response to that is Republicans say, well, now corporations will pay their workers better. Well, <laughs> it's nice that you trust the corporation to do that. Mm. But I would say, how about we make that a law? Because if you believe mm -hmm. that's going to happen anyway, you won't object to this law. So mm -hmm. my proposal, which is in there, is to return the corporate tax rate up to the 30s, except for companies for whom the bottom 10% paid employee is within 20 times annual salary of the CEO. Mm. So, for example, you have like a company like McKesson Corporation, which is one of the largest opioid distributors yeah. in America. Mm -hmm. uh, they made $6.9 billion of profit from distributing opioids in 2017, according to their annual report. Their CEO is paid $20 million. So if they wanted to keep their corporate tax rate at 21%, the bottom 10 percentile employee should make... 120th of 20, so they should make $1 million. The corporate board has a decision to make. We yeah. either need to find a CEO who will work for a more reasonable salary, or we need <laughs> to give all of our employees yeah. a pay raise. Simple math. You know, that's putting financial incentive without government resources to work to raise the salaries at the bottom. And I like that combination. Okay, lower the corporate tax rate, sure, but what progressive issue ties in most directly well, and a lot of that goes straight back to like Henry Ford, you know, whatever we can say a lot about him personally, but he, he understood that you have to pay workers enough to, for example, buy the product. Certainly. And, and the other aspect of the corporate tax cut that I have in my platform is to lower corporate tax rates even more 
so long as the corporations spread their stock ownership to employees. So that if employees themselves mm. own over 50% of the stock,、mm-hmm. so they have the employees as a body have the controlling interest in the stock, the corporation can pay an even a lower tax rate. Because I think that model, which is somewhat similar to what they have in Germany, where there's a broader ownership of employees and、yeah. unions have even seats on the board,、mm. I think that model allows companies to continue to innovate and try to be profitable. But the employees, which every company says is their strongest asset,、yeah. they also have a seat at the table and will have a voice when it comes time to decide between buying a new machine or giving raises at Christmas time. In terms of companies having the duty to their stockholders to maximize their returns, I would imagine if the stockholders are also the employees, that shifts that dynamic quite substantially. Sure, sure. It just adds a different angle because. The idea that a corporation's most important duty is to get its quarterly、mm. targets and so forth—that's a relatively newer idea that's、mm. taken hold.、Yeah. And part of it is because CEOs' pay is tied to that now, and CEOs also are, are stockholders, and it sort of has a feedback loop effect. If we're staying on taxes, you know, the other way to get money into people's pockets is income tax cuts, personal tax cuts. You know the GOP just passed its tax bill. I'm actually one of the progressives that loves tax cuts because everyone wants to have a little bit more money in their pocket. But I think the Republicans they kind of they didn't quite do it quite right. So you know, like, well, <laughs> not, so you know, not I, quite. <laughs> well, so you know, I、yeah. have I have twin seven year olds, and when I say to them, "Hey, the Republicans they cut the bottom tax bracket from ten percent down to ten percent." How's that sound to you? <laughs> like my seven-year-olds can tell you that's not a yeah, tax cut,、yeah. and then you compare that zero-point tax cut for the the tax rate all of us pay、mm-hmm. to the fourteen-point tax cut that Trump organization、mm-hmm. is going to get on its tax bill. People know that's just wrong. So okay, any Democrat can say, "Oh, that tax cut's wrong." Then what's your plan? And I have that in my campaign platform. These are the tax brackets I think we should have. So the bottom tax bracket I want to cut from ten to five. That's cutting the tax rate in half at the bottom. The second bracket up, I want to cut from twelve to ten. So that means everyone on their first seventy-seven thousand dollars of income for couples、mm-hmm. gets a tax cut、mm-hmm. under this Democrat. Now, I'm not one of these profligate spending Republicans, so I think that should be balanced by tax increases at the top. Yeah. So I'd say the top tax bracket that went from thirty-nine point six down to thirty-seven should be restored back to thirty-nine point six. And then for income over a million dollars, I say we go back to forty-nine percent as a tax rate, which is what Ronald Reagan was fine signing in nineteen eighty-one, and substantially lower than what it has been at other points in American history. Certainly, going back to tying the maximum CEO pay to twenty times the lowest ten percent workers—that's a nineteen sixties level、mm. of pay. We're not doing something that the United States has never done before. You know, I always like to boil it back down to the actual mechanics that are happening here. So. You know, take again the CEO of McKesson Corporation, the opioid distributor. His pay last year's total compensation was twenty million dollars. So, if he's paying the top tax bracket, he got roughly a three-point cut in taxes. That's close to six hundred thousand dollar tax cut he's getting from the Republican Congress shipping opioids. And、yeah. and I should remind you that company was fined for lax controls on opioid shipping、mm. just in January of last year, a hundred million dollars. So. Okay, what does that mean? He's getting a six hundred thousand dollar tax cut, and the deficit's going up by six hundred thousand dollars. That means 
down on Maiden Lane, where the Federal、mm-hmm. Reserve has its operations, they are going out to the market and borrowing six hundred thousand dollars more. Think about it. The United States is going out and saying, "China hedge funds, everyone, can you loan us another six hundred thousand dollars so we can cut this guy's taxes? We'll pay you three percent interest for five years." That's what's actually happened. The deficit is actually us going and asking for money that we'll pay interest on. I think people who don't work in business don't realize it's it's not just a number. It's us going out like begging. Like people on Staten Island are paying these taxes for that. This, this is why people on Staten Island are going to lose their house yeah, over salt tax deductions. You know, our our current representative Dan Donovan he criticized the GOP tax bill piece of the the salt deductions. That's like missing the forest for the trees. That's not <laughs> even seeing the, the tree.、Park. The problem is not just that. It's that you know someone earning twenty million dollars for being the CEO of an opioid corporation. They don't need an extra six hundred grand. You know what is one Maserati not enough? You need like three or four more. And think about in the middle of an opioid epidemic, how much treatment those taxes could pay for. Well, that's the thing, you、to、know, undo I, some of that damage. When I see him touting, "Oh, well, I've got fifteen million dollars for a treatment center. That that's wonderful."、Mm. You just your party just gave two hundred fifty-eight million of tax cuts to one opioid distributor that paid a hundred million dollar fine just twelve months ago. Yeah, you know, I've worked for large companies before, and I know that fining them doesn't change behavior. A large corporation will have legal reserves and whatnot, and if you're working in there, you'll see the news headlines. But it's well, abstract. It's the cost of doing business、but、to a lot of these for、companies. a white collar work environment like a corporation. If the DEA went in one day, let's say next next Thursday at 11 a.m., the DEA raided their headquarters and marched the top executives out in handcuffs and carted out their computers. By 11:05, that would be on CNBC, and the stock price of every company. That's related to opioids. <laughs>、mm-hmm. It would be tumbling by 11:20. Every company's corporate board would be on a conference call, and the CEO would be saying, "We will not ship a single pill until we're a hundred percent sure it's going to a medical need." And that's how you get change. So, how do you figure out how these companies are doing it? If you were going to raid an office, what would be the factors that would trigger that raid? Well, I think in the case of McKesson Corporation, given that they've already been fined for lax controls. That should be reason enough to raid. Now, obviously, some police raids reveal evidence of wrongdoing. Some do not. That's but part of the evidence gathering process. To me, sort of bigger picture, this shows the difference in how we treat white collar criminals and blue collar criminals. You know, take for example, someone being pulled over by the police, and the police maybe seeing marijuana in their car. You know, they can confiscate the whole car, and through civil forfeiture. And even if that person isn't convicted、yep. of a crime later on, they're going to have to jump through lots of hoops to get that car back. That's crazy. That, and we don't do that even for the suspicion of something on like a white collar level. Certainly, and and I tell you, like even if white collar workers spend just four hours in in jail before they're bailed out, that changes behavior. I think that's how you change behavior on that front and deal with an opioid crisis. It is a crisis. You know, we've been speaking here for. Maybe ten or fifteen minutes. That's one more person that's died of opioid overdoses in America just in that time alone. It's it's crazy, and it's a crisis that the president acknowledged on day one of entering the White House, and then has done nothing about. Yeah, yeah, like nothing. It's happening in districts across the country, clearly, but in this district, knowing how much a lot of the people who live here are really personally affected by it—people's families, people themselves. 
we've already had guests on the show who've gone through this or been very close to people who've gone through this. I think the most that our current congressman has done is he introduced a bill to ban pill making machines or like parts being sent through the mail. So one of my favorite uh, movies from childhood is the movie uh, Untouchables with mm. Kevin Costner and James Bond. Um, <laughs> and at some point, Kevin Costner's like, well, how do we find the alcohol? And Sean Connery says, well, you go to where it is. <laughs> like, we know where the opioids are coming from. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's how I feel about it. The bigger picture in the end, it's going to be a, a medical treatment issue because why is opioids killing so many people? It's because it's so addictive and then it's so lethal at a certain point. Whereas you have tobacco is addictive, but much less lethal, except over used time, over yeah. a longer time. Or marijuana is even less addictive and less lethal, which is why I believe that it's time to legalize it for any use that an adult has for it. You know, I like to say to people, I don't drink apple teenies. I don't smoke cigarettes. I've never smoked marijuana. And I think all of them should be legally usable by adults in moderation if they choose to, because they're yeah. adults. And out of those, probably the tobacco is the most medically dangerous and the alcohol is the most societally dangerous with DUIs and, and fights oh, and yeah. things like that. There's many states around the country that have had it legal for a while now. My brother lives in Colorado. And it's a very nice state. You know, you don't arrive there yeah. and it's it's not like land of the walking dead. It's a great state. It's very healthy. Um, yeah. You know, Portugal has decriminalized most drugs. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, they haven't decriminalized opioids because of how hmm. addictive they are. This is an issue that we should speak about with nuance because I don't think marijuana is necessarily good. And there's a lot of studies that show for children and adolescents, it's bad for the development of the brain, which is why it should be illegal to sell it or give it to well, children. Well, you regulate it and you tax it. Um, yeah. The same with alcohol is not great for the brain and even worse for the liver. Mm. I think that the latest research I've read is that the addictiveness that people have is, uh, in a large extent, part of their genetic makeup. So that uh, if you have a history of substance abuse and addiction in your family, it's much more likely you trying one drug will get you into a cycle like that. Whereas I've been fortunate that none of my family that I'm aware of has any types of issues with alcohol. Or, so were I to try a drug, it's maybe much less likely for me. And if that's the case, this sort of stigma related to, to drug addiction should be met more with compassion, I think, and, and medical treatment, which you know universal health care would be there to address. And there's also a lot of evidence that societal conditions can exacerbate those problems. There's a really famous study now with rats where the rat that was alone in its cage with a bottle of cocaine-filled water and a bottle of regular water just like sat there and t did cocaine water until they fell over. Whereas the rats who were in a cage with a whole bunch of other rats and some toys and some stuff, they just, you know, they might try it, but they'd go back to the regular water oh. and they were fine. Um, so attacking it, not just from the genetic predisposition, but also the medical point of view of mental health and engagement and societal it's a, support. Yeah, it's sort of self-medication. Right? Yeah. And if we accept that approach, we can't really fully address the opioid crisis or why it's been hitting our district so much harder than others without addressing all the other issues on the island, like infrastructure, the economy, or education, and how we're following through on those promises. And the answer isn't always college education for every single kid. When Democrats talk about everyone should go to college, 
they're treating the symptom rather than the cause, and this, these kids are not getting a good enough education in K through 12. College has almost become necessary at this point. But in terms of the development of Staten Island and South Brooklyn, one, in terms of infrastructure, a huge chunk of infrastructure needs here and also throughout the country, especially in more rural parts of America, is for high-speed internet. And I think any type of infrastructure bill should involve laying high-speed fiber to every branch of America, because having the network that serves all of us will open up opportunities that, like the three of us in this room, can't even imagine. And then secondly, for areas of the country that aren't that close to hospitals and medical services, telemedicine is a rapidly growing field. So that if if you're not near a hospital and you're not suffering a really acute emergency, you can still see a doctor. Um, And I think this is something that the Obama administration, when it was doing ACA, put into effect the digitization of medical records, promoting telemedicine. Um, And it's just another example of sort of having a thoughtful administration building Mm. the muscle and bone of America. Well, and actually not, not even just medicine, but augmented reality trade schools. Certainly. I can imagine how amazing that would be. Can you imagine like if you're in you a know, blended classroom? Yeah. And, virtually. and particularly in some of the parts of Appalachian Mountain regions where it's a two hour drive to the next town over. It's a three hour drive to something that resembles a major city. They don't have high speed internet access. They can't telecom- you know, telecommute to jobs. They can't telecommute to college. They can't telecommute to any of this stuff. Get a trade school going over the internet, and who knows what happens. My seven-year-olds go to public school here in Brooklyn, and I'm happy with their their schooling experience. But if you look at it in most classrooms today, the classroom doesn't look that different from what it was like 100 years ago, right? It's rows of desks Mm -hmm. with a teacher in front. Still geared toward that industrial model. Yeah. And I think with the technology that's coming, the the classrooms of tomorrow hopefully are going to be much more different types of experiences where each child gets the sort of style of learning they want. And that's powered by technology and the the teacher as sort of the vocational experience, really. We have more college educated and more high school grads, I think, than anywhere else in the country, a massive workforce of educated people. And we just have terrible transportation to get those people and move them around. Yeah, I've been fortunate in my life and career to work abroad and and live abroad some. Um, And I've been to many cities in, in Asia. It helps me to imagine the transportation benefits that we should be having here. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. when you look at like the Staten Island Expressway, in Asia, that would be a double-decker expressway. Right. So you'd have double the lanes. That's, seriously, Jeez, like in wow. you know, Taipei or Hong Kong or so yeah. forth. The train so line the across the Verrazano there. Bridge. You know, yeah. Ferry boats going every which way from you know, St. George to Hoboken to Manhattan to Queens to Brooklyn, Brooklyn to Queens. The interconnectedness of New York is the lifeblood of the city. Every dollar you put into improving that pays itself back in terms of economic development, ideas, spreading ideas around the country. I'm all for like a really visionary future for the city. And it it can take federal dollars because New York City's economy is the heart of the American economy and the circulatory system is the transportation. And I mean, unfortunately, with subway lines, they've been let to degrade and not gotten the repairs they need. So there's not as much of a quick fix there, but in terms of uh, ferry boats or 
or a quick solution to put into place relatively. Yeah. Bus lines are quicker. Obviously, roads can be constructed, and it just takes focus. Yeah, you know? yeah. On Staten Island, particularly, that you've got so many challenges there with the existing infrastructure. I was speaking to a friend who was saying when he was growing up, he had to take three buses to get to school. I was, you know, out there myself the other day watching fifteen buses come down as a victory. Mm, I think in the island, there's a few things that you can do. Like a bigger problem with the bus lines is the frequency of the buses. Right. Yesterday, I got out of the movie theater with my son at like 4 p.m. And the movie theater is up in sort of northwest Staten Island to, to put on the map. And we went to the bus stop and I checked with the, yeah. the special mm-hmm. SMS code and it said bus coming in four minutes. And I checked again and it, it had disappeared. Yeah. The bus yeah. wasn't and coming. Same and thing happened like, to me the other day. are we going to stand outside for... 20 minutes in like two degree weather to wait for the next bus. Now, luckily we now have like Lyft and Uber and I able to afford those things, but a lot of people aren't able to afford it. You know, with buses, it's almost like a feedback loop. The more frequently they run and more reliably they run, the Mm. more people use them. Yeah. yeah. So I'm a big believer in fleshing that out. You've been on the campaign trail for maybe longer than anyone right now. What what are some of the stories that you've heard from people on the island that really connected with you? There's lots of people in Staten Island, obviously, who voted for Trump for president. Mm -hmm. And there's still people I respect and feel compassion for. For one thing, as a Christian, you know, one of the most important things is loving your neighbor. It's it's not tolerate your neighbor. It's not mm. respect your neighbor or put up with them. It's loving them. So when I when I meet someone who says, "Oh, I voted for Trump," instead of reacting to them with anger or whatnot, I want to understand what in their life was causing them to feel such I don't know, stress or pain that they felt. I want to roll the dice on him mm-hmm. because wh- mm-hmm. whether you support him or not. He's definitely not a typical politician with the typical politician background. Yeah, it's definitely a vote for a change. A a vote for a change, a vote for what people perceive as a businessman. And then from there, um, try to address those issues. Because I think a lot of what people felt was, hey, I've had regular politicians for the past 20 years, Mm -hmm. and the, quote, economy is doing great, but hey, my paycheck hasn't gone up. I'm falling further and further behind my mortgage payments. And when people are stressed, they're cranky, you know, like as, as a yeah. parent, yeah, yeah. especially as a parent of twins, you know, there are times when like, if I haven't got enough sleep, I'm much more snippy with them than I, I am normally. So if someone, even if they get angry at me or like, oh, you supported Clinton instead of Trump or blah, blah, blah. I accept that not as something wrong with me, but as they're experiencing so much stress, what can I do to help them? And to revert back to, hey, you're feeling that stress. Your paycheck's not going up. Donald Mm. cutting the tax rate 14 points for his company and cutting the bottom tax rate zero points, that's not going to get any more money in your pocket. But this is what will. Ideally for me, I'll I'll go to Congress, pass some good laws that get people money and health care, and then go back to the private sector because I don't see myself as a long-term politician. Not, I, not feeling like a lifer? Not really. I mean, <laughs> you know, I've, like yeah. I said, I've lived around the world. I've had different jobs. and Yeah. So there's actually something that has gone around in my mind and just something you said bringing it up. In the past, there was this idea of being fiscally conservative and socially liberal, mm-hmm. that on-the-line moderate. And what I've kind of observed, and as somebody with a background in finance, maybe you've got another perspective on this, 
is that actually a lot of these progressive policies are exactly what I would think of when I think of fiscally conservative and socially liberal. You know, you've got, for example, Medicare for all would end up saving money over time. You know, the stuff that you're talking about with tax code. Well, and I I don't know if Paul Ryan would agree a 49% rate on million dollar plus income is is conservative. Paul Ryan and I agree on nothing. So that's fine. Yeah, I think the great thing about 2016 is the paradigms are broken. We Mm. get to define what the Democratic Mm. Party is. I think there should be a broader spectrum of ideas presented to voters, because sometimes they'll choose ideas that you didn't think had resonance, for, for better or worse. I think my economic policy is focused on the problem of today, the money for people that make up the bulk of America and their workers and their families, because we've redirected the system to benefit too much at the top. And, and people who are, are wealthy, you know, they're good wealthy people and bad. They're hardworking and lazy. You know, it's, Across it's, the economic spectrum. Absolutely. It's not like a pairing of a liberal idea and a conservative idea. It's the pairing of two good ideas. Yeah. We can steal <laughs> ideas off of the conservative side if but like they make sense and they're going to work. Patriotism and religion. They haven't got a monopoly. They've stolen stuff from the liberal side more than a couple of times. And I think it would be good if in America political forces can admit when they're wrong or when the other mm. side's right. You know, for example, yeah. just last week I was in National Review magazine, which is, you know, a bedrock conservative magazine. Ooh. They admitted they were wrong about uh, Mayor de Blasio and the, oh, the stop and frisk. Oh, interesting. You know, they said when, when de Blasio was running for mayor the first time and he said he's going to end stop and frisk, which was waning at that point, but he was mm-hmm. going to end it for mm-hmm. good. They were one of the voices that Mm -hmm. said, hey, that's going to lead to crime spiking and there's going to be blood running in the streets. And they wrote a a column saying, hey, we were wrong. Crime in New York is lower now than it was four years ago. We were wrong. And that's that's an admirable thing for a side to do. And to be fair, Mayor de Blasio doesn't get enough credit for stopping Frisbees. I've never been stopped by cops improperly. If anything, I'm sort of waved through improperly in certain circumstances. Mm. But hundreds of thousands of people, can you imagine that being stopped? It's a real burden on people in so many ways. And it got us nothing. Yeah. You know, yeah. Crime has continued to go down. So basis, if you go to MIT, engineering is about solving problems. And I've thought through the issues. And this is what I think will actually get people on the right track again. Speaking of being open and admitting mistakes, has there been anything in your platform, especially since it's been a while since you announced that you've adapted or added or recalibrated? Uh, That's a good question. I think it's less about changing positions, but certain topics have come up to me Mm. more. So for example, in campaign finance reform, that's something obviously I was aware of, but when I knocked on doors in Annandale and sometimes got Republican doors, that's something they would bring up. Like it's donors have too much power, donors have too much power and so forth. You know, I thought a lot about, okay, what's the answer beyond just the typical politician thing to say, oh, I'm a good-hearted person and I'm not going to be swayed or whatnot. And I think it's really about the system. So a lot of progressives and liberals say that because, oh, Citizen United was passed, all hope is lost because we're never going to have the Supreme Court again, so it's hard to change, et cetera, et cetera. There is a way to get around that, and I believe it's federal matching funds for campaigns Mm. in in Mm -hmm. real time. You know, if you look at how much money was spent on the last election uh, on all the federal campaigns, I think the estimates are like five to six billion dollars. 
which sounds like a lot of money until you think about that that's maybe five fighter air jets, yeah, you know, yeah. fighter planes. So you have a matching system where if you have you know, three candidates running and it's real-time matching and they have to report donations in real-time, if candidate one raises $30,000 this week, the other two candidates are brought up to within 90% of that 30000 So donors are free to give donations to any of the candidates, but the other two candidates will be caught up with federal funds to a large extent. And what that means is donors who are just giving to candidates because they want access, their, their power is sort of diluted because the other their candidates' opponents will also be getting federal matching funds to bring them within striking distance. So then the election will be decided much more on which candidate can appeal to voters and has the right message and the right background than on who can raise, raise enough money. So, so it would be an automatic trigger of like, if the three of us are running and in one week you raise $100,000 and Dan and I each raise $20,000, there would be a boost that would bring us within a certain percentage of... of we'd be boosted up to, if you got 100 and right. we got 20, we'd get like an extra boost up to 90. Right. So we right. would never catch up entirely on but that. But we'd still be competitive. Yeah. What are some of the possible cons? What are the things that if we we're going to write this into legislation that we need to protect against? We pay for it with federal funds and yeah. that we should be straight straightforward with it. There have to be thresholds to be met. Very similar to the, mm. the city races right, matching funds right. you have here where you have a certain threshold of maybe raising some money on your own or certainly if you've won a primary already, that should be yeah. the threshold to be made. But as always, when Republicans give these worst case scenarios about federal spending, they're imagining behavior that just doesn't exist mm. in real life. There's not like a huge pool of people out there just saying, oh, I can't wait to launch a congressional campaign so I can spend some <laughs> matching funds. But I, don't, I mean, I think we all kind of had that understanding of government. And what we're learning in this administration is just how much of our government is held together by what people call gentlemen's agreements. Yeah. Well, and, and the same comes true with like the quote chain immigration mm. issue. My two older children are immigrants mm -hmm. because um, in my marriage, my now my ex-wife, but her sister passed away in Japan. Mm. And so her children were sort of orphaned. And so we did the international adoption to bring them here. They're becoming American. The one is an American citizen now. The other has a green card. Yeah. They're just as good an American yeah. as anyone else. That process took three, four years, yeah. tens of thousands of dollars of lawyers, fees, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if you haven't dealt with the immigration service on a mm. personal basis, and I've dealt with them before. As an American, like I acknowledge my privilege, it's a horrible, stressful, one bureaucrat has decision power over your life experience. Yeah. And the idea that people undertake the immigration experience casually is just flat out wrong. And it's backed up by the numbers. Like when yeah. you look at the family yeah. immigration, it's at most two or three people. It's maybe the elderly parents. It's maybe a brother or sister. But it's a sometimes decade-long process. Yeah. And it's really undertaken because people want the opportunity that America offers. Well, going back to what you said about compassion, it's, you know, where does that enter into a system that's so obsessed with keeping people out? Yeah. I mean, I often come back to Bible stories and, and love thy neighbor. And a lot of people who aren't Christian or, or don't read the Bible as much know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's now sort of popular culture. 
you know, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan in answer to the question, what is someone's neighbor? And that parable was to say, the neighbor is the person that helps you. It's not Mm. just the guy in the, the house next door. So love thy neighbor, that means loving people from anywhere. Well, and, and that's that idea of kind of global solidarity as well. Global solidarity is being in solidarity with your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, your neighbor might care about Yemen or Haiti or have family from there or be from there or, you know, be going back there on a regular basis or really be tied back in with those politics. And you might be saying like, oh, I'm just talking about some foreign country. You're not talking about a foreign country. That foreign country, you live in New York City. <laughs> that foreign country is at least two blocks away from you. <laughs> At any given point, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, the school teacher might be from Equatorial New yeah, Guinea, yeah. And you know what? Equatorial New Guinea, their per capita GDP is higher than Russia. So, which countries <laughs> mm. are we sucking up to these days? Mm. You know, in the end, I'm a Democrat because I believe in democracy, and I think, especially in this race this year, we have <laughs> seven first-time candidates, and that's an exciting thing. Like, yeah. that's a great thing. I obviously I've met all the candidates, all of my competitors. Yeah. They're all like decent people. I feel like we're sort of the Justice League. You know, we've got, <laughs> we've got a Batman, we've got a Superman, we've got yeah, an Aquaman, a yeah. Green Lantern. We, we don't have a Wonder Woman, unfortunately, I'll say straight is, up. Is there still time for a Wonder Woman there to is. declare? Absolutely. Ladies, we want a ladies, Wonder Woman. get out there, get out and there. And then the voters will get to look at all those people and say, who do I most want to go up and fight against? Well, I guess if it's Grimm, you could say Two-Face. And if it's... <laughs> If it's Donovan, I don't know, more like a, a bowl of cold oatmeal, I think. He's <laughs> kind of flavorless as a villain. Um, I'm all for all of us being on the primary ballot. And I can say up front, I'm going to declare, I'm not going to challenge anyone's ballot signatures because I think that's frankly cowardly and mm. it's a silly way to limit democracy. You know, I think obviously different groups will endorse and support different candidates. And that's fine because everyone's opinion matters. But I think for the Democratic Party, and especially for a progressive mm-hmm. party, the candidate you want is the guy or the girl, if, if someone joins in, who will get and inspire voters to come out on primary day and vote for them. Mm-hmm. Like the, the best outcome yeah. for the party as a whole is if seven people are on the ballot and one of them gets 70 or 80 percent of the vote mm-hmm. because that's the person who clearly should be the nominee. And yeah. I believe it's, it's me. And I think I, I've laid out why, because I'm going to help the district in these ways. Um, but in, ultimately, I trust the voters. Looking at the entire field can give you a good overview about what maybe the Democratic Party really could look like mm-hmm. in our neighborhood, in our district, and maybe nationally, because none of these people are establishment. All these people are coming up with their own ideas. Like there, there are different areas where each of you is incredibly strong and incredibly knowledgeable. Um, and and you know, once we're through the primary, you can only hope that everybody's ideas kind of start coming together. We'll come together like Voltron. Well, I, I guess one other idea that I have that seems popular when I talk to people in Staten Island and Brooklyn is mm. America is number 40 on the list of public holidays. And I think <laughs> one thing about addressing workers right. who are tired and stressed is people deserve more holidays. So as in my campaign platform, I propose three new public holidays. All right, let's hear them. Easter. Mm-hmm. which is usually a Sunday, so it would be held on Friday. You'd have Friday off. August 18th, which would be Women's Suffrage Day, because that's when women got the right to vote, and Election Day. And I think we'd be better Ooh, off yep. if we had had at least those more yeah. holidays. 
I could use them at least. Election day being a day off yeah. it has a major effect. Or even a long weekend. You know, take the Monday and Tuesday. Weekend Monday and Tuesday for that last minute campaign blitz. Yeah. Let yeah. everybody get into the process. Yeah. When I yeah. when I was doing voter registration in, in I guess it was Southwest Philly uh, for the Clinton campaign, or dealing with people who maybe didn't even complete high school, you realize that even registering t- to vote you see the process is actually much more complicated yeah. if you're not raised in a culture where it's common. Mm. So anything we can do to get people involved and make it easier, I think, as a Democrat believing in democracy, that's really what we should be doing. And, and just as an aside, um, listeners, we've said this a few times now, but there are people in South Brooklyn who work on voter registration year-round. Get in touch with us. We'll hook you up with them. And also be aware of, you know, languages we, we do need yeah. in the next year or so. We need to be advocating for more languages to be on the ballot in general, because you'd be surprised how limited that number actually is. Well, and, and more canvassers and volunteers who speak multiple languages. Ah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> so thanks so much, Zach, for coming by. This was great. Um, so any place that people can go to get more information sure. or my, um, my campaign website is Zach Emig 2018.com. That's Z A C H E M I G 2018.com. Um, you can sign up to help collect ballot signatures in March, which all of us need to be doing. And on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, I'm at, at Zach Emig 2018. My email is fearless at ZachEmig2018.com. And I, I'm happy to get questions. I try to answer every question, no matter whether it's mean, nice, you know, right wing, left left wing. The questions are the fun part of life. Uh, and I think that's something that is kind of a recurring theme. You know, we have all of these fantastic candidates. Reach out to them, get to know them, talk to them. You know, it's it's important to have those conversations now. Yeah, and, and if people truly believe in their ideas, Mm -hmm. you shouldn't run from questions. Like, it's a bad sign when you see Republicans running away from reporters. Bring it on. On that note, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again, Zach. It was awesome to sit down with you. And again, as Zach mentioned, petitioning starts soon. So we hope you'll use this series and show notes to get an idea for who you'll be rooting for and hopefully lending a hand to. Up next is Paul Sperling, followed by Max Rose as our series presses on. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or whatever futuristic space-age podcatcher you use. And leave us a review, too, if you have a spare second. And if you have more than a spare second, check us out and the show notes at www.radiofreebayridge.org. And follow us on Facebook or Twitter at at RadioFreeBR, where we get a little bit more fun in editorial. Till then, this is your favorite hyper-local progressive South Brooklyn podcast saying, Stay free, Bay Ridge.